0: Although my young children have never watched a horror movie, and if I have anything to do with it, never will, the other night at dinner, one of them was talking about horror movies because, for some reason, he has a classmate in third grade who has watched a lot of horror movies and was talking to him about them. And the conversation continued, and he said, you know, I feel like every horror movie involves murder. Pretty interesting insight from someone who's never seen one, has only heard bits and pieces about them. And I thought, well, of course. And to give you a little insight to pull the curtains back on what my home life is like, I immediately got up from my seat and I said, buddy, you just gave me my introduction for Sunday sermon. And I thought, of course, every horror movie involves murder. It always needs to include murder. Why? Because whether that movie ultimately involves chainsaws or evil twins, ghosts or monsters, ultimately, for anyone, nothing is scarier than death. You actually need your imagination or the imagination of a Hollywood writer to see chainsaws and evil twins and ghosts. But no individual needs imagination to understand the reality of death. We don't need it. Because death is real. Which is why the believer, in understanding resurrection, has such confident hope, which leads to joy in life. Because we know that death is not the end. In fact, it is the beginning. And as we saw last week, in our resurrections, death will actually be defeated so that it is no more. And as we continue on this wonderful topic of the end of death in resurrection, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 32. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 32. We have been studying verse by verse through this topic of resurrection found in 1 Corinthians 15, and here he continues, the Apostle Paul, that is, and writes, starting in verse 29, otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This morning in these few verses, I want to give you three useless pursuits if resurrection is not real. Three useless pursuits of the Christian if resurrection is not real. The first useless pursuit in this hypothetical situation is anticipatory sacrament. Anticipatory sacrament. Let me read for you again verse 29. He says, otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? This verse is clearly very self-explanatory, so let's just move on. No, I'm just kidding. You're probably sitting there thinking, what in the world? Are we supposed to baptize the dead? Well, let's look at this verse word by word. Again, Paul begins with a conjunction. Here, otherwise, technically a conjunctive adverb for you grammar nerds. And this connects us back to the resurrection of Christ, which proves and promises the future resurrection of all believers a resurrection that ensures Christ's ultimate victory over all of His enemies, including death. This is followed by the presentation of this renewed kingdom to the Father who then becomes all in all. This is all review from last week. From those lofty themes, Paul brings us back this morning to the practical, addressing first the baptism of the dead And then rhetorically asking, why baptize the dead at all if the believer's resurrection is not real? The glaring question for us this morning as modern day believers, of course, is what is the baptism of the dead? In other words, what exactly does this entail? Why were they doing it? And what's more, why is Paul using it as part of his argument rather than condemning it? As a preacher of God's Word, I need to be faithful to the text. I do not add to it, or I strive not to add to it, and I definitely strive not to take away from it. And the fact of the matter is, we don't know what this is because we aren't given any clue here in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture. But although we don't have specifics, within the larger context of Scripture, we do have some guidelines that not only help us to understand this, but also keep us from heretical practices which some modern religions have taken up because of this very verse. And I share these not only because of the issue at hand, the baptism of the dead, but also because they can help all of us in the study of other or all passages of Scripture. So, first, we know that nowhere in Scripture is this practice commanded. That's why we don't practice it today. The baptism of the dead is not commanded anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it's not even mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Second, when trying to understand this, and again, these are specific principles that come from general interpretation skills. Second, we know that the Scriptures teach that baptism does not save So automatically you say, well, we don't know exactly what this is, but we know that they're not baptizing people for the salvation of those who are already dead. There are some, such as Mormons, probably being the biggest religion in our country that does this, that practice the baptism of the dead for salvation of the dead. Which fits with what they believe, namely it supports their system of works righteousness of which baptism is a part. It's one of the works. And so if you can do works even on behalf of those who have passed before us, then you can do that. The Catholics do something similar in that your present works in this life can spring someone up out of purgatory. We can be certain that if the Corinthians believe this to be true, that salvation uh, can be achieved for the dead through baptism, then Paul would be condemning it. From what we have seen thus far in 1 Corinthians, he would most likely not just condemn it, but spend a long passage, a lot of ink in explaining why it is wrong, as he has done with every other issue that we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians. And since he only mentions it in passing, we know it is not a practice that would subvert or contradict the gospel. Thirdly, And more specifically, we know that this is something that the Corinthians are doing. And since Paul uses it as part of his argument for the resurrection of the dead, we know that it is at best a harmless practice, and at worst, wrong, but a minor issue. So, what exactly are they doing? Notice first that they are not baptizing the dead, but the people who are still alive are being baptized for the dead, on behalf of the dead. Now I mentioned that we don't have any clarification on exactly what this is. But I would tell you, and as, as a way of warning, and I think most of you know this, this is why you're here, a popular, if I can put it that way, preacher would tell you exactly what this practice is. A faithful preacher would, would tell you, we don't know. There are several views floating around, but even the faithful scholars, preachers, and commentators who propose any of these or lean towards any of these would conclude by saying, but we don't know, we can't be sure. For the sake of being thorough, I'm going to briefly share some of the views that are, uh, that are good men, scholars, pastors, many of whom you know, many of whom you don't know, but the people you do know get their views from these people, the commentators. But again, all of them say, but we can't be certain. Some believe that being baptized for the dead means suffering in a way that we take the baton of Christian living from those who came and died before us. This would actually have biblical support in that it would be using the word baptize in the same way Jesus does in Mark 10.38 and Luke 12.50, saying, I am going to undergo a baptism, speaking of His torture and death. So a euphemism for suffering and death. Another view which is most straightforward is that believers were being literally baptized with a view of being reunited with their loved ones who have passed away. And so Paul is saying, if that's the symbolism of baptism and your hope is to be reunited, right? baptism symbolizes death, burial, resurrection, then what's the point if you'll never be reunited? In other words, what's the point of doing this if you don't really believe that you'll be resurrected? The next view says that the dead refers to those who are dying and not yet dead. So baptizing believers who have not been baptized yet but are near death. Understand this is the early church. And so things are still being processed and understood and coming into regular practice. And finally, this may be speaking of those who are saved through the testimony of those who died. In other words, someone died perhaps as a martyr and they watch him and they said, Wow, Uncle really believed that Jesus is Lord. I really think he's right if he's willing to die for it. And so through the testimony, of Christians who have died, people who are living are then saved. Baptism naturally follows salvation, or baptism can be a euphemism for salvation. For those of you who uh, trust Him, and for good reason, you should, that last view is, is the view of John MacArthur. But even he again says, but we don't know. Again, We simply don't have enough support, either biblically or even historically, that can lead us to definitely choose any of these views. We know that they're not doing it for salvation. Otherwise, it would contradict Scripture and Paul would condemn it. We know that Paul uses it as part of his argument, so it's not something that he feels is necessary to stop at this point. But we don't know exactly what the specifics are. But what is very important for us this morning is that although the specifics are not clear, the point Paul is making is clear, and it's the point he's been making over and over again, resurrection for believers is real to the point that what's the point of doing what you're doing if resurrection isn't real? So let's move on to our second useless pursuit of if resurrection is not real, and that is apostolic service, apostolic service service. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. We, in verse 30, is referring to Paul and the apostles, although the general principle could be applied to any believer who is suffering for the sake of the Lord or for the sake of the gospel, an act that would be unnecessary if resurrection is false. Unlike any believer, however, we know that what Paul describes here was a reality for the apostles. It was a reality for him. That's outlined very clearly for us in the book of Acts and by his own testimony in some of his epistles. He says we are in danger every hour. What's the point if there's no resurrection? The word danger is sometimes translated jeopardy. It means exactly what it says. Being put in danger, being put in jeopardy, And in this context, we see that it is about the apostles risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. And the phrase is in grammar that emphasizes a constant state of danger, which is then affirmed with the phrase, every hour. Hour by hour, at all hours, on an hourly basis, we apostles face danger. Friends, this is not, as you know, an overstatement. This is not an attempt to be dramatic. The apostles were leaders. They were figureheads of a heavily persecuted religion at the time and place. And even when they were not actively preaching, there were those who were seeking their lives, knocking on doors, trying to find them, to imprison them, punish them for something that they had preached earlier. There was also the reality of the dangers of travel in the pursuit of their mission that often put them in danger. Much like today, many people back then, not the majority, I shouldn't say many, some people were willing to sacrifice their safety in the travels of the day for money, business, conquering, but they were doing it for the gospel. See, these were not travels in modern ships and aircraft with advanced navigation and safety measures. Nor were these vacations that were time to take advantage of the ideal weather. Fair travel conditions. Because this was ministry, and in ministry you go not when and where you want, but when and where God says. And so they were in danger every hour. It was normal. It was life for them. It was the uninterrupted experience of their existence And as for Paul, he goes on in verse 31 to make it more personal. He says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. He says, I affirm. This is the equivalent of when someone says today in our modern vernacular, I swear. And often people, when they swear, they swear by something that is very important to them. Growing up, I swear on my mother's grave was a popular one. Or I swear on my life. It's always something that adds weight to what they're saying because it's very important to them. And the beauty of this is the same idea here. Paul is swearing on something that is most dear to him, and that is the fruit of his labors for the Lord, namely, in this context, the faith of the Corinthians. He says he boasts in them. Earlier in chapter 9 in verse 1, he asked the rhetorical question, are you not my work in the Lord, Corinthians? This is not sinful pride or egotistical boasting, but a boasting in the Lord. This is a confirmation that Christ is working through him, though he recognizes it is his life that is daily in danger. It's as if I were to point of all of you and say, this congregation, these people, you are my pride and joy. Look at how much we have grown from a church of four people in just ten years. If I were to say that, it is a boasting in the Lord and what He has done through me as His vessel, and not a boasting in myself. At the same time, I can look back and know the effort and work that I personally put into it knowing that it was the Lord who did it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. You are my boast in the Lord, and yet it's in the context of the suffering he endures for that work. This is what Paul is doing. He understands his personal pain and suffering and dangers he has endured for the sake of the gospel and the church while boasting in the fact that it is God who is at work. Here's a wonderful side note, by the way. We see the heart of a true pastor here. A true shepherd. Because this book is all about the hurt inflicted by the Corinthians. This book is all about them turning aside from what he has taught them. Despite the need for rebuke, you see the joy that he still finds in his flock, in their faith, as wayward as it has become. Back to the verse. At the end of the verse, he explains more about what he's been saying regarding the dangers of what he does in apostolic missionary work. He says, I die daily. Every day, day by day, from day to day, I die. And he's saying that every day he faces death. It's an elaboration of what he just said about all the apostles in verse 30. He is daily facing the possibility of physical death. We tell people, especially when they're doing something that is unproductive, we use this phrase, you know, every day could be your last. Maybe we use that in evangelism, rightly so. And this is true. Every day could be your last. We could die from a heart attack. We could die from crossing the road, from a car accident, a slip in the shower. But when applied to Paul, this was very real. He's not just saying this as a proverbial reality that applies to everyone. He's saying this like a soldier at war for whom the enemies are gunning and searching. It's like I could die any moment. Later in chapter 16 and verse 9, he will refer to as many adversaries in Ephesus. Same ones he's probably referring to in the next verse. Then in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he mentions that even when he was with them, there was great affliction. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, he writes this, For do, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia when we were with you, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Perfect. Perfect. I almost died there, serving you guys. Then The trials that I suffered, Paul says, were beyond my own strength, so I had to trust in the Lord who, by the way, will resurrect me. It's a perfect passage for what we're looking at now. But then he goes on, 4.11 in 2 Corinthians, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Chapter 11, verse 23, he speaks of his many labors, imprisonments, beatings, then ends with, often in danger of death. To the Romans, Romans 8.36, he writes, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the work of the apostolic ministry in his day. And to his point in our passage this morning, none of this would be worthwhile without the resurrection. Take away the future, and as a believer you have no incentive for the present. Take away the future, and you have no incentive for the present. That's true of anything we do. Why work if there's a promise that you will not get a paycheck ever again? Why go through all those pains if your belly's just swelling and there's no baby there? Why put away if you know that for some reason all vacations will be canceled forever? Why serve? Why suffer? Why be willing to die for the sake of Christ if there is no resurrection? Because if there's no resurrection, there's no eternal life. As a well-known commentator, one of those guys I mentioned earlier that you probably don't know, But very well-known, Gordon Fee writes, Here is a succinct pastoral theology of the risks, fragility, and dearest, deepest concerns of a pastor who is willing to sacrifice all for the gospel in the light of the gathering together of all at the resurrection. Think about someone who, in our society, puts their lives on the line every day. I see one in our congregation this morning. A fireman, a police officer, a soldier. Even they get a break in the comfort and safety of their own homes, their offices, outside of work hours. Nobody is following them home to try to kill them. Not so with the apostles. There was no respite for them because they were Christian ministers, and nothing was going to change that. They sure weren't. In fact, if you think about it, the only person who lives with this kind of constant potential for danger and punishment as people seek them out and will drag them from the darkest, deepest pits in our society is a criminal. And that's exactly how the apostles were treated and viewed by many, if not most, in their day. But unlike the criminal, they couldn't choose to stop the behavior that is leading them to danger. Why? Because what they did was out of a calling and a worship of a resurrected Lord. But no resurrection no point in doing this. No point in facing danger every day. It would be foolish. It would be masochistic. And to do all this for a dead God or to risk your life for future reward when, sorry, there's actually no future. It wouldn't make any sense. And it is the resurrection which, in part, drives or drove these apostles and should drive us today. See, we know there is an eternal resurrection for you. You know there is an eternal future for you. We know the resurrection is real. But Christian, are you living as if this is so? If the hope and drive of the Apostle Paul is found in the existence of a resurrected Lord and the promise of His own future resurrection, and you too have both of those things... Why are you living as if the world is all there is? Striving to amass wealth here rather than for eternity. Seeking reputation and fame here to the degree that you withhold the gospel of truth from others out of a fear of man. You withhold the possibility of eternal life from others because you're scared Of your reputation. Well, Pastor, it's hard. You don't understand. I wouldn't call it withholding. You have the gospel. You are commanded to deliver the gospel. You keep quiet about the gospel. That, my friends, is the very definition of withholding. The resurrection is real. This is a drop in the bucket. Live for eternity, not for today. Point number three. Our third useless pursuit of resurrection, if resurrection is not real, is ascetic sacrifice. I know that's redundant. Ascetic sacrifice. We've seen anticipatory sacrament, apostolic service, and finally, ascetic sacrifice. Self-denial. Verse 32, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here Paul is saying that if the resurrection is not real, then all that he's done would have been from human motives including this battling with these enemies in Ephesus. And if such things are done merely from human motives, then there is no true profit for the Christian because what we're looking for is not profit on earth, but profit for eternity. What are human motives? Human motives refer to any worldly motives that drive the world, that drive anyone who is not a believer. Whether it's money, whether it's praise, Whether it's happiness, whether it's comfort, these are all things that we refer to as worldly, as on a human level. In other words, they are for the rewards of the world and self, not for the Lord. Human standards. And if by these standards Paul fought wild beasts, there is no profit. Because the fighting was for the Lord, for the gospel. The fighting of wild beasts at Ephesus is a specific example of what he's talked about already in verses 30 and 31 regarding dying daily and facing constant danger. And these wild beasts refer to his enemies and most likely the same ones we saw in 16:9. Although Paul lived in a time and a place where people would be thrown to their deaths at the teeth of wild beasts in the amphitheater, we know that this is not the case with him. How do we know? Again, using principles of Bible study. First, we know because as a Roman citizen, he would not have been subjected to this. You've seen this, right? The amphitheater, the great gladiatorial games. They would, at a certain point, they started throwing Christians in there and would take the hides of skins of dead animals and put it on the the Christian's back, sew them on in some way so that the lions would come and destroy them. People would cheer. But Roman citizens would not be subjected to this kind of death. Second, this kind of metaphor was common in the literature from Paul's day. And thirdly, quite simply, if it was animals in the amphitheater, he'd be dead. Not writing this. But the metaphor shows how cruel and violent his enemies could be. Their ferocity and willingness to kill him highlights in a specific way what he's been talking about in terms of his sacrifice. And here's his point. If there is no resurrection, he would only live and do what he does at a human level for selfish reasons. And you don't get attacked and put your life on the line daily for the gospel if you're selfish, if there's no hope of future life. So what's the point of living like this, making all the enemies he's made, not just people, oh, he won't talk to me anymore, people who want to kill him and fighting them if it's all just for worldly gain. Because if he's doing those things for Christ, there is no worldly gain. He does it for future reward. He does it for the glory of a resurrected Lord. He does it because he will see that resurrected Lord in his own resurrected state. And then in verse 31, 32 rather, he goes on to quote Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, to say that if there is no eternal future, We only need to live for today. If there is only today, if this human life, these whatever number of years, these few decades, we might as well enjoy life to the fullest, to eat and drink and make the most of what this world has to offer because death is coming and death is the end. And we get that. We need to be real, right? We get that. We want to do those things. This is temptation. This is sin. But we don't. Why? Because we know that this world isn't it. We know that we don't just live for ourselves. We know that God is not dead. And even though Paul is quoting the Old Testament here, this was a common saying and sentiment of that day and remains so in our day. Eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. You see, this kind of worldly living is not only potential if you don't believe in resurrection. It is expressed if, as a believer, you don't live in light of the resurrection. In other words, you can be doing this today if you don't truly understand the resurrection to just live for today. And this is how the world lives. This is humanity. This is depravity. But this, friends, is not how Christians are to live, again, because of the resurrection. This is where the rubber meets the road, as we say. It's what James calls being a doer and not just a hearer. It is not enough, believer, to have a theological appreciation of the reality of future resurrection. You must live because of it. You must live in light of it. To put it another way, what's the point of having an understanding of your guaranteed resurrection If you're going to live as if this life is all there is, what's the point? The other night, Jenny and I were watching a television show where two criminals were having a dialogue. And it was a seasoned, older man who was giving advice to a new father. They're both criminals. And they're about to embark on this crime. And the young guy's hesitant. He's like, I got a baby now. And the man says, you don't want to do this because you're a father now, don't you? And then he gives that new father some advice. He says, the best thing you can do as a dad is not to change a thing. Don't change anything because you're a father now. And the new father goes, Yeah, keep keep going to the clubs in the middle of the week and come home drunk. And he's like, Yes, if that's what you used to do. He says, You made a living, risking your life every day, you might not go home because you're a thief. Keep doing that. Don't change. There's nothing to change because the best thing you can do is keep being who you are. And I turned to my wife and I said, What a jerk. You see, before you were saved, there was a certain way that you lived and with human motives, as Paul says here. And if you were saved as a child, you understand that in your depravity, you were on a trajectory that would have led you to greater depraved living as you grew up and had more understanding and access to things. But now, instead of living like the world, you have Jesus Christ, and in Christ you have hope and a greater future that you are to live for. So, don't just live like you lived before. Things must change. Not because you're a father, but now because you are a child of the living God. It's interesting, historically, in ancient Egypt, there was a practice among the very wealthy Egyptians who would hold these lavish parties at their homes or palaces. Before the party, they would have an artist sculpt a life-size wooden statue and make it as realistic as possible so it looked like a human being. And what he would do at some point in the middle of the party as people were drinking and maybe starting to wind down, he would have his servants carry out a coffin with that statue inside. And he would tell all his guests, gaze, gaze intently on that. That could be you. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, to encourage greater depravity and hedonism at his party. This is what the world does. This is what the news does to you. This is what the re- your relatives do, your coworkers, your own eyes, your own lusts. Pressure you to live for today. But the problem with that for us is that tomorrow we don't die. Not spiritually at least. We live forever. So we are to live in light of eternity and for a Lord who has resurrected for eternity. Don't give in to the notion that today is all you have. I know you know that. But sometimes we feel different. The lust of the eyes tell us something different. I want that. And I want it now. Because physically, yes, tomorrow you may die. So do that now. Enjoy that now. Hey, you're single. You want to be married, but you're not married yet. So go look at things and do things that only married people are supposed to do because tomorrow you may die. Hey, you may only have a few years left. So take 100% of your money. Don't use it for service. Don't use it to support missionaries or Christian causes. Enjoy, buy, indulge, make more. And you know what the saddest part is? It goes beyond just sex and money. Neglect your family because you, you may die tomorrow. So get that second job and don't spend time with your kids. Because you need to buy that car. You need to buy that boat. Live for today. That's what the world says. You say, well, that's why I don't know. I'm Fox News only. You don't need the news. You can't shut off your heart and you can't shut off your mind. You have enough in your mind. You have seen enough in your mind that if you were to go blind and deaf right now, you would have enough in your heart to cause you to sin for the rest of your life. We need to battle it. We need to fight it. We need to understand that we are to live for today, not today. We are to live for eternity and not live for today. Three useless pursuits if resurrection is not real. The anticipatory sacrament, it's not in the text, but we can roll that into anything we do. Baptism of the living, communion, any of those things. It's useless without resurrection. Apostolic service, we can roll that into our service. And our willingness or the willingness we should have to do whatever it takes to serve the Lord, an ascetic sacrifice, coming to church, saying no to those things, saying no to that thing, and living for eternity. All useless if resurrection is not real, but we know resurrection is real. So there's profit and there's eternal reward and there's God's glory in these things. That man I mentioned in the TV show, he later revealed to the young new father, remember he was telling him, don't change, keep getting drunk, keep putting your life on the line, keep being a criminal. He later revealed that he himself had seven children. See, they were doubting him. Oh, you just saying that. You don't have kids. Yes, I do. He flips out seven pictures. And one by one, he tells their names and where they live scattered all around the world. And he says, you know why I don't, haven't changed anything I do? He says, I don't go to their soccer games. I don't go to their recitals. I only see them once every six months. And he said, you know what? I haven't been around. I don't call them. I don't send them gifts. And I walk in that door, you know what they do? They hug me because I'm their dad. So why change anything if I still get the benefits of being their father. Christian, we won't lose our salvation living for today or pursuing the things of the world. We don't stop being Christians if we don't sacrifice for others or are unwilling to face ridicule for our faith. You'll still have eternity. You'll still have the blessings of God, but do you really want to do just the bare minimum like this dad who does nothing and still calls himself a dad and reaps the benefits of being a dad? Do you really want to do nothing and do the bare minimum and live for yourself and still call yourself a Christian? Like this guy making zero effort, not changing anything about your sinful lifestyle, and yet enjoying the benefits of Christianity. Like I said, what a jerk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have so many opportunities and we don't want to be deadbeat Christians. We don't want to be those who by our opportunities of service and our lack of using them are considered jerks. I pray, Father, that we would strive to live for eternity, that we would resist the pressures from within our own hearts, even within our own church and the world to live for today. We thank you, Father, that the resurrection is real, not just of your son, but of all of your children. And help us to figure out and understand how this works out in our lives in a practical way. Help us to see our sin. Help us to hate our sin and love obedience. Give us a taste of that joy of obedience that is so addictive. Strive for more, to excel still more. Father, help us not to be the type of people who enjoy our surety of a future, and the blessings of being around God's people, the protection of your word, and yet living for ourselves. Whether it's the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh or the boastful pride of life, may we root it out and kill it and hate it and then glorify you by putting on acts of worship and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together as we close.